0: Thanks for joining us again, and let's get to the service. Well, as many of you would know, over the last couple of weeks, I haven't been around. I uh, spent some time over in the United States, um, spending some time networking and going to a conference uh, with some pastors across the world and it was really was quite a, a short trip. I was gone for nine days. I spent more or less a day and a half each end of that traveling, being on an airplane, and that was a whole lot of fun. But one of the, one of the cool things that we did while we were away was specifically to connect with a bunch of uh, the pastors from across the globe. So the, 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 excuse me, the conference that I went to, was called the Lead Pastors Conference for the Irresistible Churches Network. If you're not familiar, we're a part of that network as a church, and it exists with one single philosophical purpose, and it's connect churches together that desperately want to see churches be- become the sort of church that an unchurched people would want to a- an unchurched person would want to attend. I'm tripping over my words today. What does it mean to become a church that unchurched people would want to attend? And that's what we're seeking to achieve in many ways. And so the network um, event was about that. But one of the things that we had a lot of fun doing over the time was not so much the content, that was interesting, but content is, is not, um, you can get content anywhere these days. You can jump online and watch it, you can do all sorts of things. I could have attended the conference from here, as far as I was aware, on Zoom or what have you, but that's no fun. One of the, the greatest experiences I had while I was over there was connecting with pastors from across the world, but particularly some of the pastors from the UK. So they have a network over in the, over in the UK, which is uh, similar to the one here in Australia, and we're all, the, and we're all connected, and, and um, invariably, one of the things that came up over and over and over again in discussion was about the Queen, and the conversations that happened about, you know, because for the, for the folks that are from the United States they don't understand what it means to have a queen, or to have a monarch, I should say, to have a head of state in in that form. They don't understand. And they understand even less how Australia as a different country can still have a monarch as it's ultimately its head of state. It's an interesting phenomenon. So lots and lots of conversation about all of that. But one of the things that really captured my attention was not... Well, there was there was discussion around the grief and loss of, of Queen Queen Elizabeth and the second and all of that, but one of the fascinating things that came up was people's opinion of King Charles the third. Is it the third, third one? Yeah, excellent. Um, King Charles the third. And invariably, what would come up was reference to a moment in the media that happened, and you might you might have seen this this. Um, uh, where he's signing something, at the um, you know as a part of transitioning to becoming the king, and he, he, he gets frustrated and throws his pen at someone. Now, anyone ever got frustrated and thrown something? Yeah, some of us it might be you know Russell Crow throwing a phone at someone, sort of level of, of frustration or. But I don't know about you, but I experienced frustration. I'm a young parent, so I've experienced frustration on an hourly basis. And so it's not, a, it's not an unfamiliar feeling for me to, to be at the end of my rope and to lash out in some way. And I can only imagine what it was like for him, having lost his mother, to then have to step into a role for which he had been preparing for 76 years. What a journey. Yet what I found so fascinating was that in a moment in time, the world felt like it had the right to assess his capacity to rule as a monarch based on his a moment in time where he got frustrated and threw a pen. I found it fascinating. And what happened? At what point in human history did you and I get to a moment in time where we felt like we could make an assessment about someone on the other side of the world based on a moment in time that we saw portrayed by a media outlet what has happened here and it was it was so interesting to me how many people had such a strong opinion about a man they'd never met based on a situation they did not understand but what struck me is that this is not a unique phenomenon it's not unique to those the pastors. This was pastors making this assessment, by the way. Pastors at a moment in time, specifically about King Charles, it's not a, that's not a unique situation. The reality is that we all do it. Each one of us. All of the time. We make assessment about someone else based on information we have from somewhere else. And we make some assessments on their capacity or their... Um, right to do certain things, without with never attempting to understand them. And do you know what? And, and as a result of those assessments, we decide whether we are going to be for that person or whether we're going to be against them. As, a, as humanity, we do that all of the time. We either think they're capable or they're incapable. They're righteous or they're unrighteous. They should be supported for their position or cancelled. And the word of, I think it emerged most prevalently in around 2020, I reckon, I could be totally wrong, but I started to notice it in the, in the 20, 2020, 2021, was this term, cancel culture. And it's a phenomenon that exists primarily driven by social media and the media, which helps people, once people become aware of someone who's done something... You can you, your philosophical and religious and moral convictions can decide whether what they 've done is right or wrong, but based on your assessment of their situation, you decide that they are dead to you dead to you not that just, not just you dismiss them and, and whatever, but that you would you would even consider actively advocating against supporting whatever it is that they do The, the examples are endless we could talk about. Folks that, that spoke out against uh, certain flo- oh here's one Enid Blyton. Anyone ever remember, remember Enid Blyton reading her books? Did you know that she was cancelled as an author because she wrote into a historically she wrote historically appropriately for her time, but we now look back on it and say, wow, her writing was incredibly racist. And so there's been a boycott Enid Blyton movement. Because we made an assessment of her, what she was doing and what she was writing and how she was feeling and how she must, what, what, what? And it happens over and over and again. The Academy Awards, it was Will Smith smacking Chris Rock across the face for insulting his wife. And suddenly he is called to give back his Oscar because his acting excellence was cancelled by his moment of emotional outburst. We are so prone to making assessments about others when we have very, very little information. Now, where are we going with all of this? Um, I hear you ask. Well, we are in a series at the moment called Apprentice. We're actually in the last week of it. And if, you, as you would know, we've covered it already, an apprentice is simply someone that is under the tutelage and under uh, the teaching of another chooses to come under their authority and to come under their instruction. And in, in our 21st century context, we most know apprentices to be those learning a trade. But in the 1st century world, an apprentice was someone who would come under the tutelage of a rabbi. In, in the 1st century world, in Jewish, um, in, in Jewish circles. But they didn't use the word apprentice, they used the word disciple. And so this whole series has been about what does it mean that we might apprentice to Jesus in our journey of faith. And my hope has always been that we might learn something new, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, or we might learn something new about what it means to follow Jesus, an apprentice under His teaching and under His instruction, to maybe accept a little bit more authority than we were willing to give Jesus previously, because we understand who He is. But also, for those of you that aren't followers of Jesus or haven't made up your mind about that, My hope has been that you would discover a little bit more of God's heart for you, but also for, actually, what's at the core of our heart for you as… Like, why are we here as a church? We're here for you. And I believe that when you look closer at what it means to follow Jesus, all the prejudice and all the assumptions start to fall away about what the church is really about and what we're really here for. For Jesus' heart was to seek and to save that which was lost, and that is our heart too. So, we are journeying through a text this morning, the last of our series, and it's basically talking about judgment, talking about assessing others, and talking about the conclusions that we draw and what that actually says about our, our, our journey of faith. And paradoxically, unlike many of the other texts that Jesus teaches out of, or many of the other texts that Jesus uses to teach and the stories that He tells. This one's curious because there's not a villain that we're meant to say, don't do that. It's a little bit different. So, let's have a look at it and see what it is that Jesus has to teach us. So, we're headed to Luke chapter 18, Starting in verse 9, hopefully that will be up on the screen for us in a minute. Thanks, Chris. The context for our passage for this morning is Jesus is going through a whole bunch of teaching. He's taught about the kingdom of God. He's done some healings and He's taught about a parable about a persistent widow who's praying and praying and praying and praying and praying, and praying to, um, or appealing to an unjust judge about something. And that's a teaching for another day. But the context, ultimately, is Jesus is contrasting those whom the world thinks deserve something versus those who the world thinks deserve nothing. And it's with that in mind that we land here. Starting in verse 9, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Notice the who. To those to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. That's who this teaching is for. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them, a Pharisee, one of the a part of the religious uh, order in, in Judaism, whose one pursuit was to help the people of God be more holy. That was their job. They were revered for that. Us as Christians, we're not a big fan of Pharisees based on the way they treated Jesus, but for the Jewish people, this guy was it and a bit. Pharisee. And the other, tax collector. We all know, I think we've talked about tax collectors dozens of times here, I reckon. We don't like them now. They liked them less then. They were basically, they, they would bid for a contract to Rome to collect taxes, like a tender. And so, Rome would accept someone and to, to collect taxes on their behalf. And the way they made money was jacking up those taxes. And so, they weren't popular to, any, to anyone. No one liked them. But here they both are. And they both went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood by himself, not unusual, and he prayed, God, I thank You. Good start. God, I thank You that I am not like everybody else. I thank You that I am not like other people. I thank You that I'm not like robbers. I thank You that I'm not like evildoers. I thank You that I'm not like adulterers. I thank You that I'm not like murderers traitors, child sex traffickers and I thank You I'm not like this tax collector either. What, a, what an interesting prayer. I thank You, God, that I'm not like everybody else. And why? I, well, I fast and I do so twice a week. It's twice as much as was required by the law, by the way, of the Old Testament. So, He's twice as good. As he should be, and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, not just a tenth of some of the specific income, as the law required of Jews. He said, I give a tenth of everything that I get. This guy's pretty good, isn't he? What a model citizen. What a great guy. What a, what, he's, he's, he's getting this religious thing right, isn't he? It seems like it. He's doing all the right stuff live in the right ways. He understands the rules, I think, and He's actually going over and above the rules in a, in a pretty good way. So, I think that's a good thing. Don't you? Don't you? Yeah, so, so far, so good. Like, he's, he's actually not doing anything wrong in the sense of, I, I'm grateful that I don't struggle with some of the sins that I would consider, you know, really hard. But I struggle with some, and I know you do as well. And I'm grateful that there's a great many sins that I don't struggle with. So I don't think it's unfair for him in some ways to claim I'm grateful that I don't have to struggle with some of these things. But it's interesting. The tax collector on the on the other hand, verse 13, stood at a distance. So he stood, he stood away a little bit. But he wouldn't even look up to heaven. He wouldn't raise his eyes. And in in the first century, prayer wasn't the way we do it now, which was sort of... When you prayed in the temple, you prayed like that. Praying up to heaven. Arms raised up to heaven. But that's not what this guy does. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. And he said, he beat his breast... As a sign of grief and a sign of contrite brokenness. And he said simply this, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Now, in our, to our translation, it says a sinner. But in the original text, I'm sure I've talked about this before, it's actually, he calls himself the sinner. He says, if, basically, he's sort of saying that if the, I am as bad as it gets, I'm as bad as it gets. Not just another one of the sinners, I am as bad as it could possibly get before you, Lord. Have mercy on me. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that this man is talking about the tax collector. Rather than the other one, talking about the Pharisee, went home justified before God. So, as a, as a result of their prayer moment, it was the tax collector that went home justified, as in cleansed, set free. It's a judicial term that says, just, basically, just as if I had never sinned before God. He's justified, released, set free from sin before God, rather than the other one. And then he finishes with this. He says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And he finishes it there. How interesting. So what do we learn from this passage? Well, I think one of the first things that we ought to notice is the challenge for us. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, the challenge is quite simply against the pride that creeps in when we look at our self-sufficiency before God. Quite separate to whether it justifies us or not, quite separate to whether doing the right thing before it, as, a, as a follower of Jesus, quite separate to reading your Bible uh, every day, quite separate to all of that stuff, is the way that our self-sufficiency before God turns into pride. And it happens slowly, and it happens over time. But eventually, if our journey of faith is only ever about doing the right stuff before God, then over time, what happens is that it, it transforms our heart to be prideful. Prideful about our achievements, prideful about the way that we are able to live out faith in meaningful ways. Our worldview starts to shift towards God, how I'm so grateful that I'm able to do all of this stuff for you. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for all the ways that I am good. And the challenge to us is that when we start to just see our faith as the transactional stuff, doing the right things, giving the right amounts, and we lose sight of God, it ends up becoming a prideful thing in our life. And we see that in the Pharisee, because if we're honest... He was doing all the right stuff. You won't find a scholar anywhere that actually criticizes the Pharisee on his own merit. There isn't one. As far as he understood, between him and God, as far as the Jewish Scriptures were concerned, he was doing everything right. Everything right. I suppose, when it comes to your journey, how are you doing? Are you doing everything right? As best you can manage? Are oh, you? Yeah. Am I? This was something that God challenged me on, particularly. It was that, Josh, you, you can be doing all the right stuff and still miss me. You can be doing all the right stuff and still your heart can be far from mine. And I think there was a challenge to, there for us if we're going to apprentice under Jesus, we talked a lot about over this series about doing the stuff that Jesus calls us to do. And I, I feel like, quite simply, to bookend this series, we are called to not lose sight of God in lieu of doing the stuff, doing the Jesus stuff as His followers. That's the first thing. The second thing was the interesting experience we have about the paradox of what the, hell? the paradox of virtue by comparison notice what the pharisee says he says thank you that i am not like x have you ever done that have you ever looked at someone else and go thank god i'm not like that thank god i'm not like that i have a heap of different times. What's going on in that moment? What's happening? In that moment, we're making an assessment about us and our virtue, and we're making an assessment about them and their virtue, based on what we can see in that moment in time, because you don't know them, and you don't know what they're going through, but you make an assessment about them. And based on those two things alone, you determine, and I determine, whether we're better or worse, or in some ways, we make an assessment about our virtue based on that assessment. And I find that so interesting and I find that is actually what creeps in when we start talking about something like cancel culture, when we talk about making assessments about people and choosing what it is, who we're going to support and who we're not going to support based on their behaviour, is that we start analysing their virtue based on our virtue. And we use those two things to make an assessment. And it seems pretty clear that there's no life down that road. That you and I ought not look at someone else's journey and then assess how good we are based on them. And to not be like. But what I found really interesting when I... um, I started thinking about this idea of comparison and, and, um, and I don't want to be like that. What I found kind of amusing was as I started structuring this message and writing it, do you know what I, do you know what I did? Thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. For he got it all wrong and I'm pretty sure I'm getting it all right. How interesting. God's got a cracking sense of humor, so I scratch most of my sermon based on that revelation alone. Is that you and I, we can't leave this passage with the understanding, God, help us to not be like the Pharisee. Because what does that leave us with? leaves us with exactly what Jesus was talking about. Exactly what Jesus was talking about. So I don't think the point of this is that we are not to be like the Pharisee. Because Jesus didn't actually criticize his behavior in a great many ways. He didn't directly criticize it. He painted a picture. But I don't think the teaching is that we're not to be like the Pharisee. Instead, I think what God showed me is that above all else, we need to understand The heart of this Pharisee took took his heart away from the heart of God by the way he pursued the virtues of the faith. It wasn't that those virtues were bad, certainly not. In fact, most of them, from a New Testament context, are the same as the virtues we're called to pursue now. You should fast, you should tithe, give 10% of what you have to the work of God and through the church. You should go to the temple, church, and pray. None of those things are bad. But I believe when we pursue those things alone, it changes our heart to be far from God. And so instead, I think what this passage offers us is to help remind us of the humility we need to have before God. Because like the tax collector, all he could offer, there was nothing of value he could offer God to appeal for his own righteousness as, as far as he was concerned. There was nothing he could do to earn favor before God. And so instead, all he says is, God, have mercy on me. I'm the worst of the worst. before God, these two men were the same, the same, both of them equally unworthy of God's salvation, both equally unable to attain it, but one recognized it and the other did not. And worse still, the one that did not, Over time, he developed a contempt for the one that did recognize he needed saving. And that's something we need to take notice of. Is that over time, if we pursue the virtue of faith and lose sight of the relationship of faith, we somehow get to a place where we deserve to be here. And as soon as we deserve to be here, we start making assessments and judgments about those that we think don't, for whatever reason we have chosen, whatever reason that might be. And I believe, for us as followers of Jesus, our call is to have a heart for those that are far from God, and at the same time, recognize that we are by our very nature, far from God without His help. No matter how good we are, no matter how much we give, you could give 20% of your income to the church and it wouldn't make a ripper difference in terms of your ability to save yourself. But instead, by having God at our centre, we can grow in the mercy and love and compassion for those that are recognize how broken they are, and that aligns us closer to the heart of God. And so, friends, if you hear nothing else, I would say there's no win in comparing our journey of faith to someone else's. There's no win in comparison. I think I preached on that a while back. There's no life down that road, and there's even less life down the road of making assessments about someone else's journey of faith based on your experiences and your version of their life. Because the Pharisee had no idea what the tax collector's heart was like. And for us as Christians in the 21st century, what a powerful witness it would be if we refused to make a judgment about someone else until we knew them. You think about that. How many people do you know that make a great many assessments about people Based on what they know of their journey. What if we chose not to do that? What if we chose to say, when someone says, Oh, what do you think about King Charles? Would he do you reckon he's gonna make a good, good king? He saw him throw that pen. What if our response was, I've never met him? So I don't know. What an, what an interestingly radically different narrative that offers. What do you think of that pastor that just was was caught, you know, sexually abusing someone or was unethical with finances? What do you think of them? You know, you know and you go, well I don't I don't think anything. I'm disappointed. But I don't know them in their journey. But I know my journey. And I'm just as broken in different ways. What if that was our story? What if that was our witness? What if that was our choice of assessment of others? Because I believe that is the narrative that is required to transform our culture. Narratives where we refuse to make an assessment about someone else based on our understanding of their journey and what we think is good enough. And I believe by doing that, you and I can have a meaningful voice in issues of culture, in issues of what's going on around us, because you say, well, I don't know His journey, but I know mine, and I'll be praying that God works through whatever, whatever He's going through, and believing God can redeem it in that. Maybe that's a helpful answer, I don't know, but when we judge, When we make an assessment about someone else, it disconnects us from God's heart and it also disconnects us from from realising that we need God's mercy as much as they do. So may you and I, in our journey of following Jesus as His apprentices, never lose sight of how much we need Him. So let's pray together. Loving God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it speaks into our life, and and uh, it seems so interesting that whilst we've got some characters in your story, that you call us not to make an assessment about them, but instead to observe and learn, and that's hard. But Lord, quite simply, the reminder this morning is to recognize that that each of us is broken, each of us is lost without You, and that it's by Your mercy and Your grace that we are saved, not by anything that we can do to live the right Christian life. So, Lord, remind us of that when we feel virtuous. Remind us of that when we want to make an assessment about someone else's journey and the way they've sinned and fallen short of your glory. Remind us that we're not better than anyone else. And then help us boldly as your followers to offer a different narrative for a deeply judgmental world. One that is seasoned with grace, one that is seasoned with love, and frankly, one that is seasoned with all the second chances that You've given us in our journey so far, and the ones we'll get tomorrow and the day after that. The Lord, we're reminded that action doesn't come without consequence, but by Your grace, it can come without condemnation. So may we be that voice in the world as your followers today and every day to come. In your name we pray. Amen.